After an accident, minutes matter. Your words and actions matter even more. You need help, and you need it now. This is David vs. Goliath, brought to you by Dolman Law Group Accident Injury Lawyers, a boutique firm with a reputation for going head-to-head -head with the insurance company giants and putting people over profits. All right, welcome to another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. I'm attorney Matt Dolman with my partner in crime, Stan Guyp. And today we are lucky to have a distinguished guest on. Normally we have nothing but uh, bobos and boo-boos coming in the show, as the saying was from Coming to America. But we have Marcus Suss, and Marcus has been in leadership on a number of mass torts. I think the first one was Eshore. And now you are uh, you're working on a couple of big projects right now. It's AFFF Firefighting Foam and the Camp Lejeune lawsuits out of the Eastern District of North Carolina. So without further ado, introduce yourself, Marcus. Sure. Hey, everyone. My name is, uh, like you said, Marcus Susson with the Susson Law Group based out of Fort Lauderdale, Florida. Also have offices in, in Texas and been kind of in this mass litigation space for about over a decade now. How'd you get in leadership so soon? Like it's, um, I would say it's abnormal, but it's not usual. It's not customary to see in leadership lawyers that are under the age of, I would say, 50. Before your 40th birthday, you're already on leadership in Eshore. If I remember correctly, you were among lead counsel in that mass tour project. And now your name comes front and center in pretty much a lot of the projects that are going on, including Camp Lejeune. Yeah. So, um, you know, I've always wanted to get in the mass tour space. And unfortunately, it's very hard to get your foot in the door in, one in that kind of field. So what I ended up doing was taking on a case that no one else wanted. That way, I didn't have any competition. And that was the Esher case. And no law firm in the country wanted to touch that case because of a federal preemption issue. Okay. But from there, you know, we battled for about two years just to get our foot in the door. And then after that, you know, I've been in the litigation for two years. So when it got consolidated, you know, I made sure that I tried to stay front and center for leadership. And how did you, did you build up like um, just relationships with certain individuals who are well-known in the plaintiff arena in terms of mass torts and build up a conglomerate of cases with those guys? Or how do you... How do you ensure that you don't get positioned out and jockeyed out when there's a battle for leadership in a mass tort? Yeah, well, in my in my case, my initial case, like I said, there was no competition. No one wanted the cases. So it was relatively easy in that regard because there was no competition. And a lot of people didn't want to touch the case. You know, if it's not, if it's a, you know, your typical mass tort where there's a lot of competition, then you have a harder time kind of getting your foot in the door and getting getting through that window. And the only thing I can say is, stick your head out there as much as you can, do these podcasts like this, attend every conference you can, et cetera. And the good news is, is that a lot of mass litigations now, they are not for leadership roles, just picking the normal players. They're actually focusing on diversity, age, experience, gender, race. Yeah, and I saw it with Zantac. I think Judge Rosenberg, although we don't agree with her decision that she made, uh, the judge at the Southern District, she made a concerted effort to... Um, bring in more individuals of color, bring in more women. We don't normally see that. Is that something that's, is that a new trend in mass torts? Uh, that's something that I'm seeing, yeah. And, and to go along with that, they're also doing what I've seen a lot lately is having the interview process done open. Like for Zantac, the, inter the interviews were open. Everyone could watch them and see them. So, I mean, I'm all for transparency. And previously, what was like a good old boys, I mean, to cut you off, Stan, was just a good old boys network of the same usual players over and over again? Generally. Generally, that's that's what you saw. Okay. Uh, not to interrupt, but I I think we all know what you're talking about. But maybe Marcus explained for people who aren't really familiar with the way mass torts work. What is leadership? What does it mean to be on leadership for a mass tort? 
essentially a mass tort is when there's a, a, a group of people across the country that have been injured by the same product, device, or water contamination, for example. And in that case, what the courts do, instead of having thousands or hundreds of thousands of lawsuits filed in different courts throughout the country, they consolidate them in front of one judge in one court. And again, in order, I guess, in the spirit of judicial economy, you do not want to have a thousand lawyers trying to speak on common issues that affect everybody. So what the court does at that point in time, once the cases are consolidated, they appoint a leadership team, which essentially is, is the mouthpiece for all the other law firms so they can deal with the common discovery issues, the common legal issues. But as far as it relates to your specific case and your client, even if you're not on a leadership role, you still carry weight and you still represent your client specifically. Sure. But then there's also the common benefit fee that we can get into later on, which if you're, if you're participating in discovery and everyone's benefiting from that discovery, all the other lawyers who are not part of leadership, you should be paid a specific fee for that work, correct? Absolutely. Yeah. So that's one of the big things about being on leadership. There's a common benefit fee. There's also, if you're going to serve on leadership, there's oftentimes uh, a common benefit fund, which you need to kind of ante up and pitch in money to cover the costs. And that way, you don't have law firms kind of just sitting back and what I call riding the wave and benefiting from all the experts that you develop, from all the discovery that you develop. Because these things, they cost a lot of money. And don't forget, as plaintiff's attorneys, and no one ever talks about this from a client's perspective, but we do. We risk a lot when we take on a contingency fee. All these people see is, oh, you have a third or 40% of the fee. But yeah, that's on a contingency fee. And we could go years and spend millions of dollars and look at Zantac. And guess what happens? We walk away. That's a huge... There's a lot of lawyers who've lost, a lot of law firms, lost millions upon millions, not including the funders who uh, put a lot of money on the street to get these cases. And my God, everyone took a bath on Zantac. I mean, I know there's, some st there's still some state court actions going on in California, Delaware, and Pennsylvania, but the federal one, you know, got dismissed by Judge Rosenberg. That was back in, I think, was it about four or five months ago now, right? Yeah. You know, the state court case still going or? Yeah. Oh, yeah. The state court in California, they have a kind of a state court MDL within yep. their state court system called the JCCP. So that's still going. Yeah, last time I looked at it, I think Wisner is going to try the first. Brent Wisner, who's yeah. one for being the first billion-dollar verdict on uh, the Roundup case, is going to try the case. I think it got settled, and I haven't heard much about Zantac since. Yeah. I know they got over Daubert, the, you know, okay. the same issue. And that just goes to show you that. Man, you got to know the law, but you got to know your judge that you're in front of too because, look, a judge in California might make a completely different ruling than a judge in, in Florida. Yeah, and that's unfortunate. So let's take a look right now at Lejeune. And I think it's kind of unprecedented. We have a fund here that was set up for the individuals, the Marines, and obviously other you know family members that were located at Camp Marine Corps Base Camp Lejeune. Between, I think it was the years of, uh, was it 53 to 83 or 57 to 87? I think you got it there, 50s to the 80s. If I guessed it right the second time, I get it. What does it look like in terms of leadership? So this is not an MDL, but at the same time, we can anticipate there's going to be probably a grid system set up for certain tiers, like there's tier one cancers and Parkinson's disease and others. There's maybe more spurious correlation between the scientific data and you know, what was tested by the ATSDR and what's being shown by these Marines or veterans. What does it look like? You know, is there going to be an actual leadership that's set up, quasi-leadership? And I know there's a couple of camps of competing lawyers that were uh, 
going into North Carolina, but I haven't heard what the latest is, and there's not a whole lot of – you hear scuttlebug, but you never really hear of what people are truly saying in the media because there's not a whole lot of coverage of it. Yeah, so I guess the, the first point uh, that you mentioned, it's not a mass tour, Camp Lejeune. It's the complete opposite of a mass tour. We only have one place to file these cases, and that's in North Carolina, the Eastern District. So it's actually a single – it's the only place we can file them. Um, with that being said – there, the court just issued an order, so it's not rumor or hearsay. I mean, this is a court order, which essentially uh, creates a master docket for everyone to file into. And also, as you referenced, leadership. They're contemplating forming a leadership, which I think they definitely need to do, and they need to do it sooner rather than later. And I'll get into that in a minute. But the court's order allows for anyone to apply for the leadership role, and it'll probably end up like a mass tort leadership, you know, you'll have different committees, lead councils, liaison councils, et cetera. So that is probably going to happen. I think the applications are due this month and hopefully the mm -hmm. court will appoint a leadership relatively quickly. Um, I think that is what is needed to get this litigation moving because right now we have the Department of Navy and the Department of Justice. Essentially, they don't know who to talk to to represent these thousands of people right now. You know, they could be talking to one firm that has one view, another firm that wants to do something different, et cetera. So once that leadership gets formed, I think we're going to really start seeing some, some really substantive movement with that case. There's a school thought that nothing will be paid out until probably 2024 until they know how many claims there are. And then they could back in the amount of money that's been allocated for Camp Lejeune. Is that correct? Or do you think it will start paying out a lot sooner than that? Yeah, I, I hope it's... For the client's sake, I hope it's, yeah. a lot, it's a lot sooner. The court in Camp Lejeune had a hearing. They had a status conference about a month ago. I went up there for it. And, you know, one of the things that the court mentioned was, you know, when Congress passed this bill, which is a bipartisan bill, they clearly could not have thought that that court could try hundreds of thousands of cases. You know, it would just take centuries. They had to anticipate that the majority of these cases or claims would be resolved during that pre-suit period with the Navy. So using the court's own words, the Navy needs to step step its game up and, and start evaluating these claims claims. So I'm hoping, I'm hoping that we'll see some some settlements to these veterans and these family members of veterans relatively quickly, maybe right after the summer, for those with strong cases, presumptive injuries that you can't argue about. Gotcha. And in the beginning, there were some missteps by um, one lawyer, notably, I think it was Ed Bell, filed a number of cases that he, where he felt that they already satisfied the condition precedent, which was laid out by, obviously, within the PACT Act. But he felt because he filed these veteran claims beforehand, he could just go ahead and file suit and they, they kicked it back. What is the latest of those lawsuits? Are they still being heard or I mean, has anything settled as of date? Yeah. So what, another question that was raised by the court expressly, he asked the DOJ during the hearing, you know, there's X amount of claims today. There's 60,000 claims sitting with the Navy. And one of the questions was, how many cases have resolved? The answer was zero. None have resolved. And we had communications with the Navy fairly uh, recently, I think last week, and that still is the case. You know, zero cases have resolved. And I think the issue is, number one, I think leadership will help. And number two, the Navy is apparently working on a database to create a database where they can essentially input all the data, evaluate the claims, and hopefully 
start administrating some of these to the clients. Marcus, real quick, do you know, I mean, when we get out there and talk about Lejeune cases, is there a specific pot of money to go after? Like, has it been like specifically written how much is set aside to pay the Lejeune injury claims? Yeah, so they they have. They've allocated billions of dollars um, for Lejeune victims, which is encompassed along with the PAC Act, which is a bunch of other legal claims for VA benefits, et cetera. But I think one, one thing is very clear now. I think that the number of claims that they originally had anticipated is going to get blown out of the water. The VA came out on their website and said that they, they think a million people have been affected by Lejeune. So, I mean, we're talking about one of the, the largest mass litigations ever in the history. So and why anyone is shocked by that is beyond me after what we saw, the debacle in Boy Scouts. And I obviously don't want to compare Boy Scouts to Camp Lejeune, but as soon as this becomes a, there's too many law firms getting involved and the advertising's heavy and you have private equity funds getting involved, you know there's going to be a lot more claims than what was originally anticipated. We saw that there was four times the amount of claims was anticipated in uh, Boy Scouts. Yeah. We, I had a feeling that was going to happen, why anyone is shocked. And I know of law firms, I mean, I'm sure you've heard the same thing. Some law firms have thirty to 40,000 claims of their own on Camp Lejeune right now. How many cases are out? When you said 60,000, that's, that's just what's been filed with the Department of Defense or the Department of Navy, right? The now. Navy. Yep. There's 60,000 claims. Do you have to, is there like a census form that law firms have to file? Like right now, I have cases with a number of law firms. I refer a lot of my mass tort cases to Susson Law, but I have uh, a lot of my Camp Lejeune cases with firms you know of, uh, Marcus, and I might have two to 300 of these cases, but I know law firms have 10 to 15,000. That's just a, a f- seven different law firms I know would have more than 60,000 cases. So where are all the other cases sitting right now? Yeah, so exactly. Well, the good news with Lejeune um, for those firms that aren't putting the Navy on notice is that the statute of limitations isn't up and we still have some time to put them on notice. So they're probably sitting on some type of list. Not There's no tolling agreement, but there is time. So they're probably gathering some initial data before they submit them to the Navy. A lot of people are, are kind of holding off to see who's going to be on leadership. A lot of people mm-hmm. think that there may be a, a way around setting, having to set up a state. Okay. Let's not forget, every case that you serve the Navy with, after that, you're going to have to file a complaint. You know, that's approximately $500 for every case. I mean, you're talking about firms with 10,000 cases. Keep that in mind. Everyone that's dead needs to have an estate set up. You know, that's not a cheap, cheap feat in and of itself for filing the complaint. So some firms are probably, if I were to guess, collecting that information and waiting for the Navy really to get their their system up before they batch file them with the Navy and then hopefully get some reasonable settlement offers. I know there's a, and there's several schools of thought about this, and I kind of agree with what you're doing. Um, and I'm very familiar with the conglomerate of lawyers you're working with on Lejeune is sticking with tier one cases. If it's not a tier one case, what do we think is going to happen here with a lot of these, um, I won't call them dubious diseases, but diseases that where the science may not be specifically linked to the contaminants that were in the water in Marine Corps base Camp Lejeune, where the science might be, cor- you know, there might be correlation, but there's no causation. And are those going to get kicked back? Are they going to be completely rejected? Is there going to be a small sum of money to be paid in a grid system? What does that look like? Well, here's my thought on this, and it's purely conjecture. Sure. I think that what will happen once the Navy gets its act together and gets its program up and running, that they'll probably try to resolve the presumptive injuries first. Okay. 
quote unquote tier one. Everyone can have a different tier one and, and put different injuries. But I, what I do is I go by the injuries that are delineated in that form that we have to submit to the Navy. So my thought process is they're probably going to try to resolve those first because they've flat out come out and said, hey, look, the contamination caused these diseases, right? Couple that with the fact that we have a lower standard, a burden of um, proof here. It's not more likely than not. It's an equipose standard, which is even lower. Couple that with the fact that this is a bipartisan bill, right? Mm -hmm. This isn't supposed to be, I mean, it is litigation if you file a suit, but I mean, we have the Navy evaluating claims of fellow Navy members. And I'm hoping with transparency, if we can all work together up front, that we can get these people some, some money sooner rather than later. But to respond to your question about these other injuries, yeah, my firm, we're only taking probably those, those main injuries, the presumptive injuries, and a few others that we have some song science on with our experts. But one thing that a lot of people aren't talking about is there's this vapor study that's coming out by the ATSDR. And what this does is they're studying not just the contamination of the water, but the vapor that comes up from the ground, enters into building, enters into AC systems, where people are, are inhaling it and breathing that in. When they came up with that presumptive injury list, they did not have this, this data. So as of right now, some of those injuries might not be backed by science, but within a few months, they could be. So I think that's really? where a lot of people are taking on some, some, additional, some additional injuries. But I don't think those are going to get resolved quicker than the presumptive injuries. So the ATSDR, for those who don't know, it's the Agency for Toxic Substances and Disease Registry. That's the only group that has studied the water correctly. I, I can't believe you. I know there was one study where they did a comparison between Lejeune and Camp Pendleton. And then I know there was a four other subsequent studies that they did during time periods. Is there anyone else who's done a study on the Camp Lejeune water? I, I think there were some other, some other people that certainly have done it or knew about it. But the ATSDR okay. is the ultimate organization, and they're the ones that are really speaking on behalf of the federal government in creating okay. this list of, of presumptive conditions. Understand? They studied for the what the purpose of remediating that water afterwards, and or they was there a specific re what what prompted them to come in and look at the water? I guess is my better question. Well, I think that thanks to a lot of veterans that have been complaining and complaining and complaining and not giving up. I don't know if you've seen the documentary Semper Fi, but there's a few uh, Jerry and Mike veterans. One Jerry's a veteran. Mike is a, uh, was a civilian who was on, on the camp. I mean, those Gosh. guys just fought tirelessly. And I, don't, and I don't think without those people speaking their voices and other attorneys for over a decade that anyone have, would have done anything. So I think that it's, it's really a, a grassroots movement that, that caused them to do this. Before we move on to AFFF, how fierce is the competition right now for leadership? Oh, well, at the hearing last month, there was probably at least a couple hundred lawyers in, in the courtroom representing plaintiffs. I think this is probably going to be one of the biggest mass litigations. I think that at least I'm highly, highly optimi optimistic with the judge's comments that they or we are going to create a model that other mass litigations can look back on and say, let's do it like they did in Camp Lejeune. Let's all get together, share the data up front. What are we doing arguing about these little discovery matters or information we're supposed to be disclosing to each other. We're just going to fight about it for years. It's crazy. You have information. We have information. Let's get it together. Let's work together. And from there, hopefully resolve those cases. 
Okay. A little segue, if you will. You're an expert on PFAS, PFOS, AFFF. What is the difference between AFFF and PFAS? Because PFAS and PFOS are active substances in AFFF, which is the, uh, the say it properly for me, is aqueous film forming foam. You got it. No, I'd rather you okay. say it. I'm very familiar. With, I'm very familiar with that. I mean, look, the bottom line of this is they're both not good. Okay. <laughs> they're both likely can cause, can cause cancer. And as you mentioned, the firefight, call it firefighting foam, it's much easier for me to say, contains PFOS. And, you know, PFOS right now is probably, I think on a national level, probably one of the biggest concerns we have as a nation. I mean, it's everywhere. And it's in the water, clothing, the firefighters, it gets stuck into their, their gear. It's in virtually everything. It's in chapsticks. They found it in medications. They found it in... In women's tampons. Tampons. Yeah. I saw that the other day, which can't be good. It is, I think, probably the number one health crisis that really people just kind of gloss over because I think it's so, so big. And, you know, the sad part is, kind of a little, a little side note, is I've been studying all these water contamination issues and I looked into getting a water remediation for my house, for my office in my house. And you know who makes one of the filters that filters out PFOS? 3M. 3M. Yeah. One of the top ones. So they create the yep. problem, they make money, and then they sell you these treatment facilities which take out the same chemical that they put in the water. It's outrageous. Which are known as forever chemicals. Why is that? It's because of the same reason why they make good fire extinguishers. They're very heat resistant and they're not easy to break down. And so, yeah, they're great at pulling, putting out uh, petroleum-based fires jet fuel fires, but at the same time, they do, they do not degrade. They do not break down. So when they get into the human body, they attach the proteins and they don't go anywhere. So right now, I know the first trial set is the city of Stewart, Florida, and that's coming up on June 13th. Take me through, there's two different classifications of cases or bundles, if you will. There are cases based on or uh, on behalf of individuals, and that's based on exposure through, I guess, the aquifer, the water, or direct exposure if you're a firefighter, um, generally I think it was military firefighters, or we have the other case, which are, I guess, remediation cases filed on behalf of municipalities. Exactly, yep. How are those two different tracks handled? What's the overlap between the tracks and what is different about them? Yeah, well, I, th I think the overlap is really the science, Okay. right? PFOS is not good. It's, you know, it clearly causes cancer and that's why they need to remediate or people are suing because of injuries. The science is, is probably the commonality between the two. What's different is one's causing injuries to humans. The other one's a remediation effort, like you said. Okay. You know, the city of, uh, of Stewart, you know, that's not for individuals aren't going to get paid for their injuries. Those are separate and distinct. So they are different, but they have a lot of commonalities as far as the science, as far as the liability story goes. Most of my clients, if not all of them, are all personal injury cases. And the majority of them firefighters. Yeah, it's where I send my, for a full disclosure, I send my AFFF cases to Marcus and his partner. But in every mass tournament, we might need to take a step back and discuss this. There's what's known as bellwether cases, which are, there's a sampling of cases so we can figure out based on the success or lack thereof of these cases at trial, we get a sampling of how the jury's going to look at these cases in the science and determine whether we're going to get these cases settled or not, correct? Yeah. I mean, you said it, you could, I couldn't have summarized it better. Test cases, the outcomes of which set the tone for settlement. 
Does the city of Stewart have any effect on the individual cases going forward? So that's a bellwether case for municipalities, but if they win and they're victorious, them being the plaintiffs, does that set the tone? And in the alternative, if defense wins that, does it weaken the cases on behalf of plaintiffs out there? You know, that's a, that's, that's a great question, right? I'm sure the defense is going to come back if they lose and say, hey, this isn't an, an individual case. You know, that's completely different. Um, I think they'll certainly take that position. But again, going back to the commonalities of it, you know, the liability story, the fact that these chemicals aren't breaking down and that they cause debilitating injuries and cancer. I think those are all three are very common themes. And it'll be interesting to see if there is a verdict in favor of the plaintiff. I think the amount of money will tell, will tell a story about how much it, it really, for lack of a better term, pisses the jury off. Understood. So where are we right now with the AFFF cases? So right now there's a problem. What am I getting, what am I getting paid, Marcus? Tell me. My <laughs> kid, by the way. There's a lot of people who suffered very serious injuries. Yeah. I mean, hopefully we can get your clients some money sooner rather than later. There's obviously everyone always wants to know, you know, how much is my case worth? I'm one of the lawyers that say, don't call me and ask me that question. It's unethical for me to tell you. I don't know what your medical bills are yet. I haven't seen the bellwether results yet, et cetera. But there are 4,000 cases, I think, in the MDL for AFFF. The bellwether's coming up this summer. So you would think if, you know, history is anything, that we're kind of in the seventh to eighth inning of AFFF. And is, are there any individual cases set for trial yet? I believe there's, a, there's three bellwethers set and they're after the city steward, yes. Okay, so the summer too? Yeah. Well, um, I'm not sure the exact date of the individual cases. Which do you feel stronger about? I mean, I guess one, Lejeune's a fun, so it's hard to compare and contrast between the two of them. Where's the science stronger? The science? Yeah. Well, I think that, the, I mean, the science with AFFF is rock solid. Rock solid. Um, as far as causation goes and general causation. Lejeune, I mean, it, Lejeune is such a different animal than any other tort. I, I think Lejeune would probably be stronger only because you have the defendant coming out and saying, this contamination, we know, already caused these diseases. Oh, and by the way, you only have to prove things with a lower burden of burden of proof. So, I mean, Lejeune is probably a little bit more of a stronger case, but I mean, AFFF, it got past Aubert. So, you know, I, I think the science there is rock solid for those injuries. Got you. Stan, any thoughts? I've never seen Stan talk so little during a podcast. Well, you know, you got, you had such a good flow going and you know so much about these. I hate to interrupt, but I'm like the somewhat the layman that sits here and, and listens. And like, I don't think a lot of people even understand what the aqueous film forming foam is. Like, how, why is it that this is affecting firefighters? And like, you know, what is it? Yeah, no, it's a, it's a great, great question to start with, um, Matt. Thanks for bringing that up at the beginning. Yeah. It, it's essentially, it's not, so let me, the way I explain it is it's not your fire foam that, you know, you have a campfire outside burning wood. You don't use it to put out a campfire. You don't use it to put out a regular house fire. You use it to put out fires that are have accelerants in them. And the main accelerant and the main fire they use to put out is with jet fuel. And that's why we see a lot of uh, people with uh, these types of cancers in and around airports because they go out and they use this, they train with it, or they put out jet fuel fires, as well as military. Because military people, even the Navy, they train with this stuff. And I've talked to a lot of them, people, they basically bathe in it. Well, that's it. You know, how, it doesn't even require, most of these people are using it when there's no fires. I mean, jet fuel fires at the airport are relatively rare, 
training for them happens all the time. Yep. And and like this foam we're talking about, this isn't the same stuff that would come out of your fire extinguisher, the red one you're typically pulling off the wall and spraying on on fires, right? I mean, people don't need to be exactly. worried about using that stuff, correct? Right. You're absolutely right. And the problem I understand with it is opposed to like breaking down once it gets into the environment, Matt hit on this, these are forever chemicals. So they may move around, they may go into the ground, they may come out in the water, but they're never breaking down, they're never going away. And that's what makes them so expensive yep. to get out of the system, correct? Absolutely right. And I think more and more companies are, are, are coming around. I think it's, like I said, a huge health crisis. And, you know, I'm so entrenched in it that, you know, I look, I search online for everything now, which has, they found PFOS in, you know, I mean, they found PFOS in seltzer waters, some brands of chapstick, makeup, it's even clothing. And I think that, and I'm hoping that these big companies will are, are starting to come around with it because there are some clothing manufacturers that have proactively went out and said, we're not using PFOS anymore. I think Levi's is, Levi's may be one of them. I think Victoria's Secrets might be one of them. Um, don't hold me to that. But some of the manufacturers are coming out and saying, we're not making clothing with PFOS in it. Well, I noticed the CDC, I think, just recently came around also and started a firefighter registry where because they noticed that undoubtedly everyone, it, it's known that there's a higher incidence of cancer amongst firefighters as a group than the you know public as a whole. I think CDC has finally come around and said, look, we need to look into this. And they've started to create a database to track firefighters, specifically firefighters, their cancers, the etiology, how they were caused, what they've had going on to see if they can identify why it is, you know, cancer is more prevalent within the firefighter community. I feel like AFFF, these PFOS seem like a pretty natural explanation for at least part of that. Yeah. And isn't it sad? I mean, I, I, this is what kind of really grinds my gears is that our first responders and our veterans get treated like garbage. Yep. Garbage. And these are the people that saved our lives. And they are, they get treated like absolute garbage. And that's what really, that's why I like representing these people, the first responders, the veterans. I mean, these are people that, should be first in line, but oftentimes they don't complain about anything, right? And it's really a cause for me at this point with AFFF, with 3M, with Camp Lejeune. Sure. The, these veterans, these first responders, they, they got to be treated a lot better than the federal government and everyone else is treating them. So I just got done reading a book and there was a lawyer, I can't, I wish I could recall this, there's a lawyer from Cincinnati who uh, first started some of the PFOS and PFOS litigation in West Virginia it was a dump site for a chemical company off of a river in West Virginia. I wish I knew the facts better. My overlapping question or overarching question is, there's a lot of PFOS, PFAS, I guess called PFOS, litigation that's outside of this. This is, uh, I guess it overlaps, but there's individual contamination cases or mass contamination cases throughout the United States. Is this an evolving area of litigation that's going to go forward outside of AFFF firefighting foam? Um, how many more of these cases we anticipate? Is there... Any other pending projects that are going on that you know of or you're handling? I mean, I think I think this is the just the beginning of it. We're going to see a lot more. I think we're going to see it in in clothing. I think we're going to see it in a lot of. I mean, you mentioned tampons earlier, Matt. Mm -hmm. I mean, to me, you have a woman that you know uses a tampon for an extended period of time regularly, and it's in there. I mean, I can't imagine. I just can't imagine it. I think it's just the beginning of, of the whole PFOS litigation, which brings up a whole other point is, 
can these companies afford to compensate for all this mess that they created? We already know that 3M and the J&J, everyone's filing for bankruptcy now. It's a big problem. Yeah, that's, we're going to get to that question in a second, like the, you know, the, the Texas two-step that Johnson & Johnson attempted, and uh, it didn't quite work out well for them, but they're still talking of them trying it again. And what does the future of mass tort litigation look like? I mean, how often are we going to see this happening? For instance, if, uh, you know, I'm big in a Tylenol lawsuit, which I don't know how strong you feel about the science, but if they get past Daubert, is Johnson Johnson going to try it again? Because I can only imagine it's going to be a flood of litigation that's going to occur. What are we going to do about these corporations, and what is the eventually the Supreme Court going to do about it? Yeah, well, I think that if they can get away with it, they're going to do it over and over and over again, if they can get away with it. Obviously, I'm hoping that they that they can't. Which is what? Creating a subsidiary and burning all the debt of the company in the subsidiary so that they now can claim bankruptcy protection. Yeah, I mean, it, it's a complete sham. I mean, there's no other there's no other way to look at it. It's an absolute sham. If you did it as a person, you'd go to jail. I mean, that would be straight up fraud if you tried to, hey, I got the, you know, the bankruptcy's coming. I've got debts coming at me. I've got to pay. Let me move my assets over here to avoid. I mean, that's bankruptcy fraud as, a, as an individual. It's not even questionable. That's a fraudulent conveyance. You know of a known creditor on the horizon. Now you're burning money and putting it, you're deceiving known creditors. That's no, that's actually a fraudulent conveyance. You learn about that in third year of law school, depending on what course you took. How's that not considered for a corporation? I know they got denied the first time, but they, they're trying again, correct? Yeah. I mean, they put more money into it. I think they, you know, it's funny how they wanted to fund it with $2 billion. I think it was, don't quote me on these numbers, but, you know, that didn't get, that got shut down. And all of a sudden it's up to 10, 10 billion. I mean, where was that 10 billion to begin with? I mean, to me, it's just, it's a complete sham. The fact that, that these corporations get treated different than, than people, than, like Stan said, than individuals. I mean, look at the opioid litigation, right? Drug dealers get put away every day for selling drugs and targeting kids and giving people drugs that don't need them. Same thing with the opioid litigation. And that's why I think it's important. I mean, a lot of people have a bad attitude toward, towards attorneys. I'm not afraid to say it, especially plaintiff's attorneys, right? They don't, a lot of them think they refer them to them as ambulance chasers, et cetera. But I'll mm -hmm. tell you what, the FDA and the federal government they're not looking after you. If you look at most of the recalls for these products that occur and why the products get pulled off the market, you know who started it? It's plaintiff's attorneys. Sure. So without plaintiff's attorneys, you know, no one's policing these people. Without Ralph Nader, we wouldn't have a lot of uh, these types of causes of action that we have nowadays. Yep. And that's, that was a personal, that was a plaintiff lawyer. I guess, yeah, the overarching view of uh, lawyers throughout the country is unsavory and it's a few bad apples that cause it. I think it's the heavy amount of lawyer advertising that's out there. I think I put you a in a completely part. different class of lawyers though. You're not, you're doing product liability at a mass scale. It's, that's mass tort litigation. Without lawyers like yourself, Marcus, products would not be made as safe. Governments, they can run roughshod over private individuals about the government getting involved. Exactly. I mean, I've, I've met with the commissioner of the FDA during the Esher debacle, the Esher litigation. And I really dove into the, into the FDA. And that, if you think, I used to think, Hey, something's approved by the FDA. Oh, fine. I'm no no questions asked. I'll take a pill. I'll do, you know, the FDA approved it, right? And then I started diving into who the FDA the, the who the FDA is, and it's really big pharma just in a big revolving door. They leave the FDA, they go work for Johnson and Johnson, they go work for big pharma, and they go back and they go forth, they go back and they go forth. The FDA 
is not an organization that you should rely upon by any means. And don't forget, every single product that's been recalled or every drug that's been recalled was first approved by the FDA saying it was safe and effective. Yep, had that happen. So take us through eShore. eShore is an intrauterine device? eShore is a permanent sterilization device. It went into the fallopian tubes as opposed okay. to the uterus. So that's different than like Mirena. It's the only thing I knew of was Mirena. I was involved in the Mirena litigation went south. Uh, when I say involved, I wasn't handling cases like you were. I was referring cases out to lawyers like yourself. And that was an intrauterine device. So this was different. It was inserted into a fallopian tube. And what went wrong? With Esher, the allegations in the complaint were that the devices were falling apart. They were migrating, causing women to have hysterectomies, a lot of autoimmune conditions, et cetera. Those were the allegations in the complaint. And, you know, and probably, I think the most important thing or action that came out of that litigation was that the device got recalled. They're not, or I shouldn't say it got recalled. They stopped selling the device. Let me clarify. Okay, they so it's taking selling off the, the device for what they call commercial reasons because no one was buying it. But yeah, I mean IUDs are a whole nother a whole nother topic. You know, we have Paragard going on right now, um, which is another that's an IUD case, non-hormonal. Is that still going on right now? Is it past Daubert or? Yeah, that's going on right now. That's in Atlanta. Okay, that's in Atlanta, and essentially the. Uh, the allegations in that complaint are that when when the doctors go to remove the IUD, the arms break off and require women to have a subsequent surgery. And is that past Daubert right now, or where is that going? That Daubert has not been decided on that, although I don't really see it being an issue whatsoever because unlike a, a drug, this is a medical device that broke, right? Mm -hmm. And it's very clear why they go and get the second surgery. They go and get the second surgery to take it out. Yeah, I guess that was a silly question. You have to produce studies to show that. It's just, it's evident based on fact. Yeah, I mean, the medical device, same thing with exact tech, Paragard. Anytime you have, a, you know, a, a medical device as opposed to a drug that's breaking and they got to go in, Daubert really isn't a concern, at least in my opinion. But that case is going along. I'm actually on the leadership for, uh, for Paragard up in Georgia, and it's going along okay. pretty smoothly. Is there a lot of cases out there for Paragard? No, I'd this is one of the smaller ones, probably about two or 3,000. Gotcha. You know, but they still, I still get calls every day. So is eShore, when it settled, was it based on Bellware, the case that went successful, or was it just uh, the punch of the case that you had and, it, and the, strong, the strength of the science? Yeah, so when, uh, when eShore settled, there was no Bellwether trials whatsoever. They tried to argue preemption, and then they filed summary judgment, and then the case resolved. Wow, okay. You don't normally see that. Now, and I know we're going to wrap up soon, but what are your thoughts about over-the-counter drugs? You know, there's a number of these cases going on. One's obviously acetaminophen. Um, we just saw Zantac. These are very tough mass torts, I would assume, just based on proof of usage and other issues that are going to come up. Are these, and they're considered, I would assume, the most risky of mass tort cases for uh, lawyers to get involved in. Do you stay away from those? Is there, you know, what's your thought process regarding over-the-counters? Yeah, I think they're, like you said, they're a little tougher, especially the drugs as far as causation goes. Mm -hmm. But I think we're just going to see more and more of them because you know what? There's a reason why they changed the, the, the ingredients in Zantac, right? I mean, yeah. Wh why did they change it? It had, if I knew, it was it because of NDMA or? Right, exactly. I mean, the, the proof of usage, I'm really not concerned. I'm less and less concerned about those types of issues only because nowadays, Everyone, I call it the Amazon effect, right? Most of the time I get something, I buy it on Amazon or, you know, there's a record. I go 
and use my uh, card at CVS. You can pull all your records and see exactly what you bought. Not everybody, but I think that is the more and more entrenched we come with online shopping, the Amazons, the online pharmacies, et cetera, I think it'll be easier to prove, prove usage. But then again, we had the same problem in Roundup, right? Gotcha. And, and the solution to that was, hey, get us an affidavit that said you used it. Which cuts down a lot of individuals, but does yeah. it necessarily say that they're telling the truth or we don't know? Right. Because I know we have that issue in Boy Scouts. Okay. Stan, any thoughts? No, I think we pretty much hit on everything that was going through my head on this one. I got, I actually learned a little bit more than I was thinking I would during this. Yeah, I would love to bother Marcus for like three hours just listen to Mass Torch. I have a, I have an understanding of it, but I have more of a 10,000-foot view. I've never actually handled a project myself. I mean, I've accumulated cases, kept them in, then I bring in somebody like Marcus to handle at the end to get it done for us in cases where that aren't attractive. But for the most part, I actually just refer the case to somebody like Marcus because I'm out of my depth. If the two cars collide, I'm great. Otherwise, I refer it out. I do want to say one thing because I don't get the opportunity to say this, but I love talking with other board-certified civil trial attorneys like Stan. Well, that's the, that's plug that the in. hardest. I'm telling you, there's not a lot of them out here in the state of Florida, and it is one of the hardest certifications to obtain. I mean, it is it is incredibly hard. So good for you, Stan. I hope you, hope you keep out there trying cases too. You're one of the younger guys that get board certified, Marcus. I know, and it's now it's tougher too because of COVID with the trial requirements and all this other stuff. But I mean, that's nothing to to, to blush about. They got other certifications for everyone in the audience. You know, they got family law certifications and tax certifications. But the the civil trial board certification trial is by far, I think, the hardest one to to obtain, at least in my view. Yeah, that's why, you know, for those who are listening, that's why I've spoken so much during this podcast is because I have to overcompensate. You know, Stan has the certification. He's the real trial lawyer. I'm just the jerk off that sits upstairs and gets to work in for the firm. So that's my role. Stan has kind of like a smirk on his face, but he's not quite smiling. <laughs> Stan, you, you want to share any thoughts on that issue? <laughs> no, no, I'm good. Although, you know, I'm just like you. Like, I could sit down over beers and talk about stuff that would bore our audience for hours when it gets into the mass tort and some of the nuances and different moving parts and players and the way they do things. It's almost like a soap opera, you know, when you look at all the drama and the different moves and sort of the little areas of intense action when stuff happens and they kind of go into walls. It's, you know, it's fascinating when you follow them. Yeah. yeah, we sit and talk. This is what we talk about in our office all the time, Marcus. Is uh, what's going on in certain mass tour projects and our ten thousand foot view of it because we're not directly involved, rarely or if ever, and we rely upon talking to you or talking to other friends who are doing these mass tour projects to get information. But we don't see us on a regular basis, so it's a little bit out of our depth, but pretty exciting to us. I yeah. guess when you don't do it, it's really exciting. It's like the grass is greener on the other side of the fence effect. The grass is never greener. You know that. <laughs> yeah, it's never greener. I- I think it is for you. You're, you're involved in more interesting products than just cars cladding. We both help people. There's just different different ways of helping people. And that's, again, a lot of people don't like personal injury attorneys, but we take huge risks in order to help people. Gotcha. Agreed. Stan, any last thoughts? I'll let you wrap it up. No. I think we hit it. Uh, it's been another episode of the David and Goliath podcast. We're honored to have Marcus Susson here with us today, and we'll be on again here shortly in about a week. Good talking to you guys. Great talking to you. Thanks, Marcus. I appreciate having you here. This episode of David versus Goliath is over, but your journey is just getting started. To share your story with us, visit dolmanlaw.com. 
That's D-O-L-M-A-N-Law.com or call 866-965-6242. The insights and views presented in David vs. Goliath are for general information purposes only and should not be taken as legal advice for any individual case or situation. The information presented is not a substitute for consulting with an attorney, nor does tuning into this podcast constitute an attorney-client relationship of any kind. Any case result information provided on any portion of this podcast should not be understood as a promise of any particular result in a future case. Dolman Law Group. Big firm results. Small firm personal attention.